Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is May the 13th, 2020. This is episode 2659 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got an interview for you today with Michael Walsh. We're going to talk about, don't, don't turn off the podcast when I say this at first, insurance. And I know you're like, oh my God, I didn't want to have any. This is supposed to be a survival podcast. Well, when we talk about modern survivalism, we talk about preparedness. And insurance is a form of risk management. And uh, we're even going to have a quote on risk management today. And I think it'll really put us in touch with the reality of, of needing to concern ourselves with this in our life. But one of my tenets of modern survivalism is do not ignore pragmatic uh, protections like insurance, uh, among other things. Um, this is one of those things that you, you, you don't ever really get really, really excited about. But this is a great discussion. This is not going to be boring. And what you listen to in about the next hour uh, may at some point save you from losses of tens of thousands of dollars. There's one particular moment in this podcast where you can hear how you could have an outbuilding worth $100,000. You could put $50,000 of insurance on it because that's all that you think you need and end up if there's a total loss on that building with only $12,000 coming out of the pocket of the insurance company. It's completely legal for them to do this. Do you follow me there? That kind of that might be important. And you'll hear about how to pick a good agent and make them part of your financial and risk management team. Right? That includes things like CPAs and attorneys. We'll talk about why you shouldn't do business with a friend of a friend unless there's a compelling reason to do if that person was not a friend of your friend. The value of a good referral and the value of a bad referral. How insurance companies uh, not necessarily get out of paying, but how you make bad decisions uh, because you have a crappy agent or you just didn't listen and you get insurance that doesn't cover what you think it covers, like that thing with the outbuilding. Why you shouldn't overpay for insurance, how not to overpay for insurance. When the formula you use to avoid getting screwed with the outbuilding, actually, if you followed it with something like a boat, can totally screw you. Got your interest yet? I hope so. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and uh, remind you about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. They have everything for your prepping needs at safecastle.com. They have been a sponsor of the show as long as anybody. They were the first people to sponsor this show uh, all the way back in 2009, and it's 2020, and they have never left us. They have been a loyal sponsor now for 11 years years in the world of podcasting. If you need something for your prepping, they probably have it. And they give away their Discount Buyers Club, which is uh, thirty-nine or $29 a year. That's what everybody else pays for. You get it for free for life as a member of the MSP. So check them out today at safecastle.com. Next up today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Well, why would you go to the Berkey Guy to get your Berkey? Well, why would you go to anybody but the Berkey Guy? I mean, seriously, Jeff has been, uh, he's been a sponsor of the show for almost as long as Safe Castle. I mean, he came on like a few months later. You know he's not going anywhere. He's the number one dealer of Berkey uh, in the country. You're not going to get a better price anywhere. You're certainly not going to get better customer service anywhere. And you will find a lot of other great things for your prepping needs at directive21.com. And you'll get a discount if you're an MSV member. So why would you go anywhere but Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? But you know he's great at a lot of things, but not marketing and branding. 
So his website isn't theberkeyguy.com, which kind of would make sense. No, his website is directive21directive21.com. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into this. I want to start out with a quote of the day today. And I wanted something on risk uh, management, safety, uh, risk prevention, loss prevention, etc., which is generally not the most exciting topic. And I found a, uh, a great quote by J.F. Letterer. And uh, this man built his entire career on risk management. And what I loved about this quote when I read it is I said, gee, this is perfect for today's show, and it's perfect for this whole COVID nonsense and the overreaction to it. Here's what he said about risk management. He said, risk management is a more realistic term than safety. It implies that hazards are ever-present, that they must be identified, analyzed, evaluated, and controlled or rationally accepted. Holy crap. Again, it's perfect for today's show, and I won't say much about that because we're going to talk about the subject for about an hour. But you can't make sure your house doesn't burn down. You can do a lot of things to help make it less likely, but you can't prevent your house from burning down. It could get struck by a giant ball of lightning and burst into flames. But you can manage that risk through having a good inventory of everything you own, having a plan to get out if it catches on fire, having fire suppression technologies, and having insurance for fire. That's risk management. But let's look at it from a totally different standpoint. This, this whole, we have to stay home to stay safe nonsense. Uh, we just save lives, etc. Can we ask the question without being screamed at autistically with screeching? Um, how many people are going to die if we keep this lockdown going? Okay, so how many people will still die from COVID? That's a reasonable question. So exactly how many people are there going to be less by doing this? And then let's add to the number that are still going to die from this, how many people are going to die from suicide and famine around the world? How many people's lives will be destroyed? Don't we, if we're going to actually look at this as risk management, don't we have to find a balance? Don't we have to be logical about it? Like, it's not unrealistic Or it's not heartless to say, but if we do this thing you want us to do to supposedly save uh, 20,000 lives, how many lives is it going to cost us on the other side? And then how does that compare to other things that we take risk with every day? Over 30,000 people a year die in car accidents. If we got rid of all the cars, those 30,000 people would not die in the way that they're going to die this year. Okay, let me be clear. They're going to die. Over 30,000 people are going to die this year because you selfishly wish to drive a car. See, that's the argument. And if we didn't have any cars, those 30, and people would go, but Jack, that's just ridiculous. Well, because you're doing the other side of the equation. Because you haven't been brainwashed into believing this bullshit yet. You're saying to yourself, but what would be the consequences of not having vehicles? No trucks, no cars. How many people wouldn't get their food? How many jobs would it cost? What would be the economic impact? Would the absence of the automobile in our modern world with its ability to do things like transport medications, if it wasn't there, would more than 30,000 people have died that would not otherwise die? So you're asking that question. It's No one screeches at you, you just want people to die! That's not the response you get to that. You get, well, that's a logical, well-thought, well-reasoned position to have. But we're just supposed to trust that somebody already did that for us when it comes to COVID. No, what we do with a car is we say, well, seatbelts save lives, so we'll put seatbelts on the cars. Speed limits 
And, and it, again, I won't even go into the world of anarchy here because I think that most people realize that driving 120 miles an hour on a residential street is a good way to kill somebody or yourself or both. So it's not a good idea. So reduction in speed relative to the conditions and the environment saves lives. So we do that. Airbags save lives. So we put them in cars. Building cars that can better handle a crash and have crumple zones save lives. So we do that. We don't attempt to eliminate the risk in the name of safety so that the only way we can drive a car is if it's 100% safe to drive a car. It's not 100% safe to drive a car. Every time you get in a car, no matter how, you, how well you drive, no matter how sober you are, no matter the fact you always put your seatbelt on, no matter that you always look you know, left, right, and left again before you pull out, no matter what you do, you always have the potential every time you get in a car to die or kill someone or to be seriously injured or seriously injure somebody. Every single time you get in a car, that is your reality. Every single time. And we accept that risk. We put whatever is reasonable in place to mitigate the risk, and then we accept that that's just how it works. That we can't walk around wrapped in bubble wrap and always be safe. But they use something scary like, it's the virus, the invisible enemy. And all of a sudden, we're willing to just throw all that rationale out the door. Now, that doesn't mean that risk management doesn't take into account things like in the sake of you know, COVID, maybe social distancing, maybe reduction in the number of people inside a structure, maybe in some environments, masks, not all environments. I think if you're taking a walk through the woods wearing a mask, you're a moron. I think if you're walking down a relatively not busy street wearing a mask, you're a moron. When I go to a store and they have a mask policy, I'll wear a mask. But when I see a person walking from the very back of the parking lot with a mask and goggles on through the parking lot or pulling up into the parking lot, you know, and they're sitting in their car wearing a mask as they drive down the road, I see an idiot. I'm sorry, I see an idiot. I don't see a person taking a reasonable, but it's okay. I'm okay with them doing that. But I'm not okay with you telling me that, like, I legally, to drive my car, have to wear a mask. I mean, that idiocy hasn't happened yet, at least that I'm aware of. I don't think even Governor Meemaw in Michigan has gotten that bad yet. But we have reasonable risk management, and then we have an unrealistic expectation of safety. We won't be able to come out and be perfectly safe until there's a vaccine. The vaccine will have risks. No matter how pro-vaccine you are, if you say vaccines don't have any risks, you are a moron. You're a moron. You didn't read the insert they put in the vaccine to tell you about the risks that the vaccine has, that the vaccine, the, the, the insert that was written by the manufacturer of the vaccine that determined the risks in the trials and said this percentage of people have these problems. So the vaccine has risks. The vaccine will not be 100% effective. So you still will not be 100% safe. Life doesn't work that way. We can never be safe if safe means 100% safe. As soon as we have any degree of risk, we're no longer safe we're managing the risk. Risk management is a more realistic term than safety. It implies that hazards are ever-present, that they must be identified, analyzed, evaluated, and controlled, or rationally accepted. J.F. Letterer. And that's a great quote to go into our discussion today about insurance for your home, your homestead, your farm, your farmstead, your business, your side hustle, your life. With our special guest today, Michael Wall. She's a longtime listener to the show. He works as a farm insurance underwriter. He's not an agent. He does not have a policy to sell you. Couldn't sell you a policy if he wanted to. 
His goal today is to educate us on insurance for the home, the homestead, and to make informed decisions. He joins us today to discuss insurance for all of your needs. Uh, many listeners to this show probably have designed a lifestyle in some of the gray areas, a kind of farm. If they don't, it often kind of looks like it's a farm. They probably run a business. Maybe it's just a hobby. Unfortunately, insurance is designed in black and white scenarios, and he's here to educate us today on how to best cover the gray areas. And again, he's not here to sell you anything. In fact, through this entire uh, show with Michael, he doesn't even mention the name of the company he works for. Is truly a servant of the community trying to help you out. The, in fact, the only in the entire show, I think I mentioned an agency or, or a company or two by name, but um, he only actually mentions one company by name, and it's not a recommendation. It's more like a discussion of its affiliation with veterans being USAA. And he goes out of his way to not push a brand or a policy or anything like that. So I think you'll really enjoy this today. Uh, and with that, I want to say, hey, Michael, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on here. Hey, we've got you on to talk about insurance today. I, I often point out that in my uh, modern survival tenants that uh, pragmatic preparations like insurance is one of the, the key tenets of my 12-part philosophy it's one of those ones people tend to gloss over and get, think it's boring and all, but it's actually one of the most important things you can do for preparedness. So when I got your application to be on the show, I was, was pretty happy about it. Before we get into that individual subject, though, tell us a little bit about your background. Like, you know, I, I can tell by your Skype photo you are a firearms enthusiast. Uh, <laughs> how did you end up working in the insurance industry? Like, go back to before that, and how do you end up where you're at? Yeah, so probably about 10 years ago, we had a house fire ourselves before I was in the insurance industry. And uh, looking back, I think that is the event that got me both into insurance and preparedness. Um, you know, I had budgeted and saved and stayed out of debt. And, you know, we had done the responsible things. And when we had the house fire, I realized I have no idea what kind of insurance I have. Mm. Um and it, it was also an opportunity to, well, everything you own is gone. Now's the time to start from scratch. And uh, I wanted to be a little more self-reliant, and that's how I found your podcast. Okay. Um, and, you know, kind of what is your insurance background? You, you're you not an agent. We're not going to end this with, and to get your insurance today, call Michael at 888, get your insurance, you know. Um, you kind of handle things from a different standpoint inside the industry. Exactly. So I have been an agent in the past. I'm now an employee, salaried employee of the company. Uh, no commission, so I'm not here to sell anything. And with that, definitely my own opinions, uh, not opinions of my employer. But So I underwrite farm and commercial farm insurance. Um, essentially, the way to look at it is the agent is selling you a promise. Um, an adjuster goes out there and pays the claim. They deliver on the promise. Uh, and I'm the guy making sure that the promise is actually correct and everybody understands it the right way. So my process is I, I go out there with the agent, pick a farmer's brain, homeowners, a business owner, kind of figure out what type of coverage they need, where they might be lacking some coverage, and make sure everything goes as, as planned. Got you. Um, how do you think the average listener to this show should really approach life, health, disability insurance, you know, from, from just a standpoint of, 
of understanding what they need, why they need it, et cetera. Sure. So um, my focus is really on the property and casualty insurance. Um, but to be well-rounded, I think it's important to talk about all of those things. So uh, property and casualty is property is your stuff. Um, your ducks get uh, lost in some type of claim. That's property. Casualty is someone jumps over your fence like you talk about. Dog bites them. They're hurt. We're going to, you know, pay for their injuries. That's casualty. Um, but other types of insurance, so life insurance, it term is the way to go. I mean, there are some very rare cases where permanent life insurance might be applicable, but for 9 out of 10 people and realistically more than that, term is the way to go. So you really want to figure out what you need and get as close as you can. Some people say roughly go 10 times your income, um, withdrawing 4% a year, different strategies like that. But what you're really shooting for is replacing your income, whether that's from employment, um, whatever source of income you have, self-employment. When you're buying life insurance, the benefit is more important than the term. And so if you're on a budget, you're better off getting a million dollars for 15 years than you are getting half a million for 30 years. You really want to buy the right benefit. Um, You'll find some price breaks at round numbers. A million dollars of life insurance might be a little cheaper than 950,000 because the price goes down when you hit those major numbers. Um, The other thing is I would skip accidental death and dismemberment, Jack. That's, that's the coverage that pays extra if you die in some nasty, gruesome way. I've never understood why your spouse would need extra money if that happens. Um, health insurance? Sold, I did sell insurance for a very, very, very short period of my life. And um, I think the primary reason for that, uh, that, that, that add-on is so that I can cover my gas money to make the appointment that I'm going to have with you. Right. Totally it's correct. It's cheap. It's easy to add on. It sounds good. You say, hey, John, you know, you're young and healthy. I mean, if you did die, the most logical reason that you would die is because you were in an accident, right? And I've just added a you know, $16 a month cost to your insurance policy. And if I if I can't close the deal, then I can at least sell you the AD&D policy and I can make a gas money close out of it. That, that's, that's the purpose of that. It, it really is. I... I will say, to be fair, I do know of one time where it, um, you know, really did benefit a family. Uh, a gentleman that was a very good friend of my father's uh, was killed in a car accident, and uh, okay. he had just had a third child that he wasn't even aware he had yet. And by it was a basically it was a doubler, so it doubled his total benefit, and he hadn't made the adjustment. It's not like you could also win the lottery, but yeah, in general, I see it as a way to pad the commission of the insurance agent. Yep for sure. You know, there's also health insurance and that, that just varies so much by state. You're going to be better off with your employer. If you have something, um, a lot of your listeners that might be homesteading, they might be farming, um, have somebody helping out on their place and and they're totally self-employed. A lot of times going into a small group plan is going to save them money over a family plan, but Health insurance ultimately varies so much state by state. Governments kind of ruin that market for us. Uh, disability insurance, they're short-term and long-term. Not a big believer in short-term disability. That's what an emergency fund is for. But 
I would buy up long-term disability as much as you can um, and look for own occupation. Uh, that would pay. So the example there is you're disabled, uh, you get a head injury, don't have the greatest memory, now you can't be a podcast host, but you can go stock shelves or something. Sure. Well, own occupation would pay in that event. Any occupation would tell you to go stock shelves. So. Uh, other than that, there's a bunch of other insurances that you're pretty much going to know if you need them. You know, professional liability insurance, errors and omissions, crop, flood. Um, you might need event insurance when you're having your workshops. Um, but the guy could be on here all day talking about that stuff. So, could you could you talk a little bit about why you say in your notes that short term is probably a waste of money, short term disability? Uh, yeah, I would I would encourage people go get a quote on long-term disability insurance and a quote on short-term and compare it. So that short-term is going to be you sprain your ankle and you can't go to work for a week. It's going to pay out. Um, the premiums are pretty comparable to long-term disability, which, you know, in my case would pay for 35 years. So um, the money you could save – on that short-term disability would be much better off in an emergency fund or signing up for the MSB, right? Something so, yeah, like that. I mean, you could, you could basically cover your own short-term by taking Correct. the money you would spend on a premium and putting it into an account that you just keep for Michael or Jack in my case. And then if you don't need it, you still have the money. And if you use it for insurance, you, you, you don't have the money if you don't use it. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Um, are there any companies that I should really just avoid? Um, should I buy from a big name or an independent? I mean, how, how do you make a decision there? I mean, um, in the end, insurance is like one of the most regulated industries there is. Um, I have never heard of an insurance company not paying a claim if they agreed to pay the claim, like the, the check not clearing or anything like that. But I have seen... Very clear indications of companies that seem like their entire goal or agenda or like 90, like I say, you know, tax, the tax code is 90% how you get out of it. It seems like 90% of their, their policy is how they get out of paying. And then I've had experiences myself with, with some, and I'll, I won't name the company, but with one company that basically begged me to take some money. I, I was in an accident. <laughs> we weren't really hurt. I think they were trying to cover their ass because they didn't. They didn't want us to come back later and go, you know, I, I didn't think I was hurt, but I talked to Jeff Slachter or Brian Longcar, and he told me I was hurt. Now I'm hurt. So I think they wanted to close that. But, I mean, they basically said, like, let us give you a 1000 bucks for your time and your inconvenience. Um, so I've seen some pretty radical swings with that. So are there any companies that just spring to mind as, like, don't do business with these people? Yeah, there there's almost no such thing as a bad company. There might be some out there, but like you said, they are so hev heavily regulated. Um, you know, I hear people say, uh, once that company signs you up, they'll just jack your rates up every year. Well, yeah. their rates are filed with the state and they're approved by the state. And, um, you know, if we find some factor that, that says we can, we should raise somebody's rate based on a certain factor, the state has to approve that type of thing. So, Really what you should be looking at is picking an agent. Um, kind of two ways to approach buying insurance is you can become the expert yourself, which it is very complicated. There's a lot to it. Um, or you can consult somebody that really knows what they're doing and somebody that you trust. And so the, what I would advise is 
ignore it when when your cousin's neighbor's mailman's <laughs> roommate said that you know XYZ company doesn't pay claims. That was probably the agent didn't sell them the right coverage. The adjuster made a mistake. It's usually not a big malicious scheme on part of the insurance company. Um, so pick that agent that you can trust and, and really, you know, ask people who they use. You know, if you're a, a small farm or a homesteader, ask people who are doing the same thing as you and, and see who they would recommend and, and see if they're asking you a lot of questions. Are they, you know, if you call them up, I would expect them to be very interested in your podcast and the events that you have out there. And they should be asking you about your outbuildings. And if you want to ensure those ducks and hydroponics and if they're just really transactional, they're not even interested in coming out you know, outside of this COVID thing. And they just want to do it all easy peasy over the phone. I'd go find somebody else. Yeah. And I, I know this might just be anecdotal, but what I have noticed with most people that I've talked to about insurance claims, when something happens to you, as long as you have the right coverage, it seems like there's no problems. The problems seem to arise, and it may just be logistics, and it may just be amount of money available at the time, when they happen to everybody. So, you know, sure. Hurricane Harvey moves in, and, you know, across South Texas, there's four million people making claims – and you happen to have Allstate or State Farm or something that, that's dealing with a million claims, then it seems like, hey, they're just doing everything they can avoid to pay you. <clears throat> and again, that may just be like, how do you, how do you do that quickly? I, and I, you know, I, I'm not making any apologies there for them or anything, but I also like, you know, I've tried to do four things at once, and it's not easy. I can't imagine having to. Because you don't sit around with enough adjusters to process a million claims in three weeks. You, you can't do that. You have like a surge capacity, right? So you have to build up to that. But most people that I've heard from, when something happened to them or their neighborhood, most of the insurance companies do seem like that's their job and there's plenty of money to cover it. So they just show up and try to get it done. I mean, uh, I had another experience with a, a property loss issue with, I mean, it was... It, it exceeded my expectations. So I think that maybe some of the bad press comes from all of a sudden everybody's trying to get out calling all the damage flood damage, and maybe it was or maybe it wasn't, but it was a hurricane. Whether there was flood damage too, does it, like the fact that my house blew down flat kind of makes the flooding irrelevant at this point. But yeah. that's where it seems like a lot of the animosity comes from is these major um, kind of like wrath of God type events or something that that wipe out a city or a county or half a state. And, but again, I have not heard much of this from, I had this kind of insurance, this thing happened that calls under this claim and it happened just to me and they didn't want to pay me. I haven't heard a lot of that. Sure. Yeah. There were, there were some cases in Katrina where uh, field adjusters would go out and say, this guy's house was damaged by wind. And their supervisors would go in and change that documentation mm. to say it was by a flood. Um, that's just plain people being dirty. And, you know, I think a lot of it is if a pipe breaks in your house, you've got XYZ company, you know your agent, you call him up, report the claim. He probably knows the adjuster that's going out there. That adjuster's on a salary. He's driving a car with the name of that company on the side of it. He knows the contract, um, knows that agent. And when you have a hurricane come through, um, you're going to get people from all across the country 
that have maybe never even heard of your insurance company that assume it's pretty standard and are going to come in and on a, you know, a fee per claim basis are probably going to come in and settle as fast as they can um, and don't really care what the reputation of the company is afterwards. So it can get pretty dicey in those big disasters. So there is insurance for everything. And a lot of people that are listening to this show would, if you said, are you a homesteader? They would say yes. And the, the meaning of that answer is pretty broad. It could yeah. be that I have a little suburban lot and I have a couple garden beds and I keep four chickens and a little coop and run and I do all kinds. And I'm not saying you're not a homesteader. You totally are, right? Or it could be something more like my operation that's, that's, that's big enough to be small commercial, but it isn't. Or it could be something that maybe even is physically smaller than my operation, but you know, if you look at like um, some of the market gardens and stuff where people are, you know, farming a tenth of an acre, when do you think a homestead gets big enough to need what you would classify as farm insurance? Sure. So that is one case that actually is sort of black and white. Um, you follow the money. Basically, if you gross a thousand dollars or more in a year. Uh, in farm revenue, which insurance companies are going to define the same way that the IRS is going to define it. Um, that's when you need farm liability. And an example of that might be renting your some tillable acreage out or um, selling some hay, selling beef, duck eggs. What it would not include is um, processing it or oh, if you're going to go cut your neighbor's hay you're not farming now now you're engaged in a business yeah yep exactly so that thousand dollars or more in gross revenue is uh, really what you're looking for and sometimes there will be a case where you're on the edge and you would want to lean towards that farm insurance so but what i uh, so let me let me explain how i mean that then if sure. um, if i'm making a thousand bucks doing something and you want to charge me fifteen hundred dollars for insurance the reality is, and I know what you'll say, is that my risk exceeds my revenue. I get that. But I'm sure. not doing it. Like, I'm not yep. spending $1,500 to make $1,000 because that's dumb. Now, yeah. if I'm really making more and that's what I make, but you're talking about gross revenue here. You're not talking about uh, net revenue, right? You're talking about gross billable revenue or cost mm -hmm. of goods sold or whatever. So I don't know. That $1,000 number sounds really low to me based on what I've seen insurance cost. Exactly. And you, it's a decision for everybody to individually make, but an example there would be, let's say you are, you're grossing $2,000 of revenue okay. from uh, selling duck eggs. If I come to visit you and I'm just looking at your hydroponics and you're showing me your mead and I slip and fall on the steps, your non-farm policy is going to cover me. So, it's not a huge exposure. Now, if you sell those duck eggs and somebody gets sick and sues you, now you're not going to have any coverage. And that that is one way to really go insurance poor is when people do a little bit of everything. Um, I recently saw somebody who was making $1,000 a year grading roads for a township. Mm. I think the insurance policy was like two grand. Yeah, see, I can't so, afford to do it. Yep. So I either yeah, got to so, decide to take the risk or I got to decide to not engage in the commerce. Yep. And I, and it's funny, 
the underwriter in me versus the libertarian in me struggles. Hmm. Uh, the underwriter in me says, thousand bucks, you buy that policy. The libertarian in me says, well, I'll trade my eggs if my neighbor will come over and till my garden. And, uh, you know, trading stuff like that, that's also revenue. So it's just, People really need to look at it at scale. See, I can um, be a statist, and I'm still making this decision off of a spreadsheet. I, it, oh, yeah. It doesn't it's matter to me at all whether I'm a libertarian or a Nazi, right? When I sit down and I say my, my billable revenue is a thousand bucks and my insurance against that revenue is fifteen hundred dollars, it's, it's a losing financial proposition. So again, I either exactly. have to be willing to accept the risk or I don't engage in the commerce. I mean, that's, you see where I'm going with that? Like, if I'm making ten grand and I have to spend a thousand bucks to protect myself, okay, yeah, you know, you've just dropped my profit. It is a expensable, you know, against the taxable revenue. That's all fine and all, and I, I can I can justify that, but I can't justify spending more to insure myself than I make. I there is no world. I understand, kind of, from your standpoint of like, this is what you sound like when you say that, and I don't mean this in any way insulting. You sound like my attorney. Because if my exactly. attorney had his way, I would never engage in any activity whatsoever because then I would never get sued. Yeah. Right? So, like, I, my, my, the purpose of my attorney is to explain all the risks to me and all the ways to mitigate those risks. And then I say, this is what I'm going to do. And now you do the best you can with that. And that's, that's kind of how this makes me come, come at that issue from. Yep. And that's what a good agent would do for you is, is tell you you're getting close to that. Here are some of your options, and and this is a case where a carrier is going to make a big difference. So um, historically, a lot of companies have left the farm insurance market because farming ain't what it used to be. People yeah. are doing a lot of crazy stuff, and uh, if it's one of those companies that's on its way out of that market, you'll see a huge price swing. But if it's a company that really is focused on it, um, and there's there's three or four big ones across the country, and most states have one or two. Um, you probably won't see a huge difference in the liability cost. And again, you just need to look at it and say, if my farm revenue is I'm selling hay, is there really an exposure that? Yeah. You know, ultimately it's your business, it's your premium. So we also learned when we did the uh, Perma Ethos Farm in West Virginia that words are important. So when we put up the company charter and everything, we described a business operation as, as, as permaculture farm management and operation. So when uh, one of our partners put in for the insurance, they just grabbed the, the verbiage off of the company charter and dropped it into that's what our business was. Three days. Oh, okay. Three freaking days of back and forth. We don't really understand. We can't insure this. And I'm like, Kevin, dude. Just change it to we do organic farm management and and, and just put that on there. So yep. he changed it to organic farm management and then boom, okay, you have a policy. It was And that's where that agent <laughs> makes a big difference too. You might yeah. have a company that does farms all day, but if that agent doesn't know what permaculture is yeah. And there was no going. reason to put that on an insurance policy, right? So it was just using a different word changed everything. For sure. And yeah, it is like attorneys. I mean, it's a legal contract. We're nerding out over and seeing if all the definitions line up and it can be kind of frustrating when you're starting out. Absolutely, man. So, um, 
when do your side hustles start needing some sort of commercial insurance? Would you just put a dollar value on that as well? Or, I mean, does it, I think it really depends on what you're doing, right? Because if my side hustle is I drive for Uber, that's way different than if my side hustle is I remove junk from somebody's property. Oh, exactly. So, and I would bet a pretty good chunk of this audience has a side hustle. Um, Uber is a good example. So your auto insurance policy is going to exclude people riding around in the car for hire. But I think Uber actually gives you a policy every time you you start that app up. Um, there's usually an option through them. You're basically Airbnb paying, type of thing you're basically that way paying too. Uber or Lyft in their share for that kind of commercial insurance. It's one of the things they actually do for drivers that drivers tend to not appreciate. Yep, because if you went to your auto insurer and said, hey, I want to give some people a ride this this weekend for hire, they're probably Ooh. just going to cancel it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, you've got three options. Well, you got four options, really. You do nothing. You don't buy any extra insurance. Um, if you don't buy any extra liability insurance, typically some of your business property is now going to be get some automatic coverage, even if you don't buy the liability insurance. So you're uh, doing screen printing at home, but you don't buy a liability insurance. That screen printer is still probably covered for like 2500 bucks. Um, a lot of businesses can be endorsed right on your homeowner's policy. And again, it's the wording um, that's really going to depend on how that goes. So let's say you're, you're sharpening tools on the side, you're knife sharpening. Well, as an underwriter, if you said you were doing tool sharpening to me, that sounds pretty low risk. I'm going to put that on a homeowner's. What really kills people is when they've started a new venture, they've done a lot of research, and they're excited to see where it could go. And they call their insurance people and say, yeah, I'm going to sharpen knives. I might even make knives. We might even put some in a store. Um, let's just tell them what we're doing now and worry about the future later. Um, and if it, if it can't be accomplished on your homeowner's policy, you know, then it's time to move it on to some other policy. But that thousand dollars is again that the contractual cutoff in your insurance document. So if you make less than a thousand dollars a year doing a business, your insurance policy doesn't consider that a business and it'll cover that liability. So you can sell nine hundred dollars a year of whatever you want pretty much. Is there ways to let's say compartmentalize that? So let's say that I sell $800 worth of duck eggs a year and $800 worth of arugula a year. I don't know how the hell I would sell $800 worth of just arugula, but let's just say that I do for shits and grins. Um, are those two different enterprises? Therefore, are there, if I don't combine them as a single enterprise, are they individually? I mean, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, legally, pretty much everywhere, like you and Dorothy would be one entity, let's say. So... If you were selling eggs and she was selling arugula, we're going to combine that. Sure. But let's say Nine Mile Farm is a corporation. Well, if Nine Mile Farm is doing something else, that's totally different customer. Yeah. If you want to share a policy, you can. But, you know, in your case, you know, just because a lot of people are probably familiar with your situation, if Nine Mile Farm did all the farming and was a corporation, that could have its own policy but yet the survival podcast might not even need it, probably doesn't need an insurance policy, but they might take out event insurance a couple times a year for a 
a get together at your place. So we see that in farming a lot where customers will have many different entities. Mm-hmm. Some of that is so their attorneys can buy a bigger yacht, but some of it's definitely needed. A lot of it's asset protection 101. I don't own the company. I own a company that owns the company that owns the company. Yep. And so on paper, I'm worthless. So if you want to sue Jack Spirico, go ahead. I don't have shit. Uh, if you want to yep. sue my company, go ahead. That's that, that's a totally different ball of wax. But then you've got this compartment. that, com- And there's been a lot more of what you would call piercing of the corporate veil lately. But that has generally been kind of held to bankruptcies because that's where it's been most abused. Right. So sure. I have this thing go go bankrupt. I'm like, aha, go ahead, take the assets. No, we don't have any. So that's where that's happened most from what I've seen anyway. Um, and so there's there's a big case for that that's, that's outside of direct insurance. Um, I think, again, you always have to be balancing the risk. And, and one of the things that is, to me, a little frustrating is most insurance doesn't really give a shit about, like, your day in court. They just they care about covering a loss. So let's say that I did get sued because somebody says they got sick consuming my duck eggs. And let's say mm-hmm. that basically the way that that happened was I sold those eggs to a restaurant who did all of their food prep in an FDA-approved kitchen. Well, that defers a lot of liability off of my ass. And, and if I didn't do anything that's gross negligence or whatever, um, it's pretty hard to make the case that I did it. But the person being who got sick may have attempted to sue the restaurant who was well-lawyered up, and I'm not. So once they did discovery, they found out, well, those eggs, it's right on the menu, came from Nine Mile Farm, right? You look up Nine Mile Farm, and boom, there, there's, there's a much easier target to go sue. So I might yep. have a hell of a case that, hey, I'd, I didn't do jack diddly crap wrong, and I might even be able to win that case, but it might cost me more money than they want. Exactly. And so then the insurance nope. is simply allows me to settle, or at least they have to settle with you is really the way that works. Like, Talk to my insurance company at this point, right? Um, but there's no, it's not, see, legal insurance is a totally different thing then. Like, it doesn't actually help me at all with court costs or anything, right? Um, a little bit. So it's not going to, so when you buy life, they might decide insurance. to sue you, I think is what you're, where you're going there instead of me at that point. Yeah. So when you buy liability insurance, they're going to provide you a defense. So say Jack and Dorothy Spearco have a million dollars of, of a homeowner's liability or farm. Let's say you get sued on that duck situation. The million dollars is used to pay that third party that was hurt, but the insurance company might, they might spend another million trying to defend you and that's all out of their pocket. So you place that defense burden on them, but in exchange, you're also giving them the right to settle on your behalf. And, and you might say, there is no way they got sick and I feel like I can prove it. I don't want to settle, and they'll say, "Well, too bad. We're paying them twenty-five grand to make this go away." And uh, your rates might go up for that. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, the way we'll see it actually happen is, you know, you've got that great relationship with that restaurant. They would never, you know, turn around and sue you. But what will happen is their insurance company will pay the guy that got sick, and then afterwards, their insurance company will turn around and sue you, and. Uh, this, your insurance company will actually pay you to go to court. They'll pay you uh, okay. usually so many dollars a day to show up, and yeah, fun process. It's very, it's a very gray area when you have liability. 
you know, if a water pipe breaks in your house, that's super black and white. Mm-hmm. But who's liable for injury is pretty difficult. Gotcha. Because I imagine so. my policy might say something like, well, we're not liable if you do something really, really stupid. Right? Like, yeah. if, if you come um, over to my house and the yeah. reason you got hurt at my house is I shoved you down the stairs, does my sure. insurance cover yeah. that? It, they would have to uh, prove that you did it intentionally um, okay. to hurt somebody. Okay. Yeah, so if you sucker punch somebody. if um, that's assault, and now if the commission of a crime is not covered. And that, so your your liability has two things, actually. So the one is going to be, say, that million dollars liability. That's not going to pay when, when you've got your get-together and you shoot Nick Ferguson in the ass with a pellet gun or okay. something. <laughs> that was intentional. Yeah. Um, but there's another thing on your policy. I didn't shoot Nick Ferguson in the ass with a pellet gun. I shot Jake Robinson in the ass with a, with an airsoft gun, though. That did happen. Well, now you got plans for your next get-together. Yep. All right. <laughs> <laughs> But your uh, your medical payments to others would actually probably pay for that. Um, that's going to pay even if you weren't at fault. So that big limit pays when Jack did something wrong. That smaller limit pays when someone got hurt there, period. So when you hear of the burglar falling through a skylight and mm-hmm. getting paid by the insurance company, that is why. Yeah, which I think is so. ridiculous, but that does happen. And, yeah, Completely. I remember when I... I took a course on tort law. There was an example of, and this is like the most abusive thing I've ever heard of in my life with this type of a, a lawsuit, where a guy had a really nice classic car, and he had like all kinds of chrome on it and stuff, and he had a chrome gas camp, cap. So very sadly, a, a child from the neighborhood, and I use child loosely, this was old enough to know better, um, took the <laughs> gas cap off and looked in it with a freaking cigarette lighter. Oh, boy. And got very severe burns. And they sued under attractive nuisance. Wow. And, I mean, this is like in the early 80s. So this is before, like, you even had uh, – there was no such thing as a locking gas cap or anything. So there really was no way around sure. this. And my understanding is that the, the, the plaintiff won in that case, which is just uh, – that's actually a case for insurance, though. You know? I mean, yeah. come on. I mean, like, the litigious nature of society is why we have these things. Yeah, the other thing we're seeing a lot on on uh, those types of claims is, oh, maybe it was only just a minor singeing of the child's hair. Yeah. And normally you would have paid $10,000. Well, now the the claim you'll see on that is a PTSD claim. Mm-hmm. You really can't prove somebody doesn't have it, and the limits just go sky high. So, yeah, that's what you need insurance for. It's crazy. Generally, I find it ironic that often the lawsuit will be the exact dollar figure for the amount of insurance that exists. That's, that's, yeah, that's so a they, they take a thing. good guess. Phenomenon. They yeah. actually, um, so it's a fair guess that most homeowners would have 300000 of coverage. Yeah. Most farms and businesses probably have a million. And, but other than that, the fact that you have insurance or how much insurance you have is typically not discoverable in court. They're, they're not allowed to know that Jack has a $5 million umbrella. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that's the case in Texas, but it is in quite a few of our states that we operate in. That's, that's interesting to know. Um, how do I decide, like, let's say I have an insurance budget, which I always believe in budgeting, especially when we start, 
when we're stepping up away from, I'm a homeowner that needs to insure my house. Okay, well, you're going to buy the insurance minimum that your mortgage lender says you have to. Right? You're going to buy mm-hmm. that. And it costs what it costs. You can shop around, but you're getting it. Um, as we move into the world of business, then I need to budget for my business. Because like I said, if I have a $2,000 business, I'm not having a $2,000 insurance budget. My business is now zero before I even started. Yep. So you have to come up with a budget. But let's say I set aside money for insuring my business. I buy all the stuff that I need, that I absolutely have got to have, and look, there's money in my budget now. Now, and I actually say, because I set that aside for insurance, I want to have a good discussion with my agent and find places that we might apply. Instead of I just, okay, gee, I found that money. I'm going to go buy booze with it, or I'm going to give a bonus to my 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 my, my hand, right? Uh, I, I'm actually going to spend this budgeted money on insurance for insurance. How do I figure out what is the best places to kind of fill in some gaps? Yeah, so... Your average, your average homeowner to begin with is going to, people buy a house, they just listened to yesterday's episode, they're excited, they go buy a house, and they really don't look at the cost of insurance because they're usually escrowing it, um, and they really should be. So what you want to do is get that coverage right first, whether it's a home farm or business, and either it's a bank telling you you need it or it's something that keeps you up at night. Get that coverage correct first, and then we'll mess with the price. We'll get a higher deductible or something like that. So, you know, let's take your place, for example. If a hailstorm came through and the insurance company didn't pay you for your dented roof, you know, after you go punch the insurance agent out, you guys probably are going to be fine. It's mm-hmm. going to be a pain in the butt, but you've got an emergency fund. Sure. Now, if someone sues you for a million dollars – um, and you don't have coverage, that's a bad day. So look at the things that keep you up at night. You know, if you've got a business that really, you know, if it's a loss of income that concerns you, talk to your agent about that. If it's um, an employee getting hurt, talk to them about that. Um, That's really the way to do it. So what you don't want to do is buy low limits because it can really – hurt you. So let's give an example here. There's, I don't know if you're familiar with replacement costs versus actual cash value. Probably been down that road a little bit. You know, replacement cost is going to build your house back brand new. Actual cash value, the insurance company is going to pay you what they say it's worth, which is a lot of arguing to determine that. So mm-hmm. uh, what I'll see a lot of times is somebody has a um, a shed out there. They're running their business in the shed. And that shed would cost $100,000 to rebuild. I would say, that's a hell of a shed. For 100 grand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. You get jealous. I'd say insure it for 100 grand and, and have a higher deductible if it's too expensive. Because here's a little bit of a math case on how it's going to work out if you do otherwise. So it should have been insured for 100 grand. You decided, I'm going to save money. I'm going to insure it for 50 grand. Okay. Storm comes through, does 50 grand worth of damage. Most people would think they're going to get 49 grand, 50 okay. grand minus their thousand dollar deductible. Okay. Not so much. The insurance company is going to do what's called co-insurance and they're going to say, well, Jack, you should have insured it for at least 80% of what it would have cost to rebuild it. That was 80 grand. Hmm. You insured for 50. That was 62 and a half percent. 
So now you lose replacement cost. So now they're going to say, well, that was 50 grand of damage, but it's an old shed. It was only worth 20,000 that was damaged. Yeah. Then they're going to pay you 62% of that. Yeah. 12,500. Then take your deductible out and you're screwed. And that's usually how people. So, so hold on. Really let's let's go on there because here's my other thing with that. Let's say I insure that shed for a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And and they come back and say, well, you know, it was really only worth twenty. Because I, I I've yeah. had that issue before. For instance, it was boat insurance. So I bought a boat. I paid five thousand dollars cash for it, and it was probably worth six. I got a good deal on it. It was probably worth six. So they put twelve thousand dollars worth of insurance on the boat. So I got the quote for the insurance and looked at the price. That seems a little high. Boat insurance is pretty damn cheap. It's like the, one of the cheapest insurances mm-hmm. you can buy. But it just seems kind of high because I've owned boats before. And I, so then I look and it's insured value of twelve thousand dollars. So I call up the agent. I said, "So if the, if tomorrow morning somebody comes into my field, throws gasoline on my boat, sets it on fire, it's a total loss. Are you guys going to give me twelve thousand dollars for that boat? Well, I'm not sure. Well, why don't you find <laughs> out?" Why don't, why don't you find out what you would pay? Because I don't want to insure this for more than you're going to tell me it's worth right now. Because the only thing that's going to happen from the value today forward is that value in a depreciating asset is going to go down. So I'm not buying $12,000 worth of insurance on a $6,000 item. Because I don't care that I have it, you're never going to give me that $12,000. When my Dodge truck was totaled, they gave me seventy five hundred bucks. I could have had thirty thousand dollars insurance on it. They would have still said the value of the vehicle at the time was seventy five hundred dollars. So how's that yep. work with something like a shed or an outbuilding? Yeah. So every state, that I'm pretty sure every state is going to protect the house this way, and almost every state does with an outbuilding, okay. where they say if it's a total loss, the insurance company has to pay you the limit, and that is an incentive to not let the insurance company sell you too much insurance on that stuff. Okay. So uh, they accidentally insured that shed for 200 grand. Lucky day for you if it's a total loss. So you're telling uh, me if I loss, over if I overinsure a structure, they're screwed. If I underinsure a structure, I'm screwed. Yep. But the boat's going to be different. When yeah. you say 12 grand on the boat, contractually what that means is Jack, we will pay you the value of that boat. Up, to, up 12. to 12 grand. Yeah, yeah. And your agent should have known that. Now, classic cars are sometimes a little different. Yeah. Where they're real unique and they will pay you the limit, but uh, boats are usually not that way. Yeah, vehicles and boats is something you have to be really careful that you're not over-insuring. Um, and, and what happens, yep. I think there's a big, like because we're going to talk about ways to save money here on insurance, and, and that's one of the ways to do it, especially once you own the vehicle. If you're carrying more insurance on a vehicle than the value of the vehicle if totaled, you're giving your insurance company free money. You're, you're, you're yeah. just literally not getting anything out of it. And th- so what happens is Joe buys a, a, a really nice used truck for $18,000, let's say. So he puts $18,000 worth of insurance on it. Three years later, he, his truck looks as good as the day he bought it. He maintains it well. It's a beautiful truck. But it ain't worth $18,000. You go to Kelly Blue Book and they'll tell you what it's worth. And it ain't $18,000 no more. Joe's also put mm-hmm. 15,000 miles a year on it. It's 45,000 miles on it. So all of a sudden, his $18,000 truck is worth 14000 12000 11000 whatever it is worth. 
Well, since he hasn't updated his insurance, he's still paying for $18,000 worth of insurance that they will never, ever, never, ever, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to say never, ever, 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 ever pay him, no matter what, when it comes to the loss of the vehicle. Now, liability, now that's a different world, but the insurance of the property itself is going to be limited to the value of that property. Yeah, they're only going to pay you the value unless you buy that real gimmicky, you know, uh, we'll replace your vehicle one model year newer or something. Yeah. But 99% of people don't have that. And a good agent, and, and that's where a good agent is worth more than picking the right company because a good agent would call you and say, Jack, you're crazy. Yeah. Paying 600 bucks a year to insure this piece of crap truck. You need to take this off of here. Well, I would say you know, there's a point. Insurance a, isn't on the front of your mind all the time. There's a point with a vehicle where you look at what they would give you if that vehicle's totaled, and you look at the cost of that insurance, and you start saying, I'm going to put that money in an emergency fund, and I'll just buy yep. me a new damn truck if that happens. Now, with my Dodge, even though it was a used truck, because we, we've always done that, that's one of my things is I always look every year, here's what I'm paying for. Um, and we had kind of declined, you know, dropped the amount of coverage on the vehicle as the value of the vehicle went down. But when they gave me $7,500 for that truck, frankly, I was sad that it was gone. It sucked to lose a paid-for truck that I had that long. But nobody mm-hmm. on planet Earth, including the biggest Jack Spirico fan in the world who wanted it because it was Jack Spirico's truck, would have paid me $7,500 for that truck. Right? That was that was the only way I would have ever gotten $7,500 for that truck. It was way worth maybe five in reality. Sure. But it certainly didn't make sense for me to insure it for eighteen grand. That would have made no sense. Because there's no world exactly. that anybody was including the insurance company would be eighteen grand on it. And while we're on the the topic of the value of a vehicle, um, your vehicle insurance is going to cover things that were part of the vehicle when it was factory. So let's say somebody listened to a podcast and decided they were going to put some some batteries in a solar charger in their truck, which is super cool. Yeah. Uh, your insurance may or may not pay for those when you total it. Uh, you might have to add them on there for literally a couple dollars a year. So if yeah. you got a service bed or or uh, some off-grid powering thing or whatever, you might want to add that, that on. Could that be covered under possessions? Um, yeah, if, if it my was my computer's in my truck and I, the, the truck gets wrecked and the computer gets destroyed, my laptop gets destroyed in the wreck, that's a property, right, personal property. Yep, and that's a good case to... For most people, with some exceptions, to have their auto insurance with their home, because mm. you might only have one deductible. Gotcha. Um, but if you had them separated, uh, you'd probably have two deductibles that way. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, if it's not permanently attached to the vehicle, your your homeowner is going to usually cover that. Gotcha. Yeah. Because um, like I had a laptop stolen out of my Jeep Cherokee one time. Somebody broke into it, stole it. It was hidden under the seat. They knew to look under seats and. Stole my laptop. I bought it from a guy for like 300 bucks. The insurance company looked it up, said replacement value on it's $1,100. Nice. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't insurance fraud or anything. I didn't lie about it. That was one of the things I realized, though. We've had two different claims kind of like that where things happened where, God, there are some cases where insurance fraud would be really, for the immoral, easy to pull off. Um, I think the risk was pretty bad. But it was like, like, I could have just said that happened. I didn't, but you know what I mean? Like, I could have just said that happened. I came out, I looked at my car, the door was unlocked. I guess they had, you know, 
Slim Jim did or something. It was an old vehicle. This is like a, a 90s vehicle where it's a lot easier to do. And I immediately called the police, and they came out and did a report. What's missing was a laptop and a few other things that weren't – like they weren't going to pay me for my Garth Brooks CD. They just weren't. <laughs> but they, you know, that sucks. all I did was submit a copy of the uh, police report and they just cut me a check for the laptop. And I was thinking, man, this is, this is actually kind of scary. And it might be part of why we pay so much for insurance. Cause it's probably more common than I think it is. And that's a good, brings up another good uh, misconception. I hear a lot. You'll hear people say, well, if you don't lock your car, your insurance company won't pay when it's stolen or, if you wire up that addition yourself, your insurance company won't pay when it burns down. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of insurance policies. And I've never seen anything like that. Um, so, I mean, I'd lock your doors, but yeah, they're still going to pay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So are there any other ways people can look at maybe saving money on their insurance? Yeah. So, um, man, there's a lot of good options. So, Higher deductibles, that's going to be the main thing. If, if you've got 30 grand in your emergency fund, which is, you really, why do you have a $500 deductible on your house, you know? Yeah. Um, to a point, you want to call that agent up and see. So if you go from a thousand dollar deductible to 2000, well, that might save you a thousand bucks a year in premium. No brainer. You got one year, I'm, I'm uh, back, I'm back to par after one year. Yep. It's, it's Sometimes free it money after it. that, right? Like it's dollar, dollar, dollar bills, y'all, at that point. <laughs> exactly. Um, the other thing is you you can go broke buying these optional coverages. Um, identity theft, uh, water backup. I mean, some of these are important, but you can go broke. Um, what So what I would do when you're talking to your agent, for example, most of your listeners probably would benefit from contents of freezer coverage because they got half a steer sitting in the freezer mm-hmm. well that's pretty cool if the freezer fails you know your insurance company is going to cut you a check for all that meat yeah. but i would ask that agent what happens if i have a claim is it chargeable or not mm. and this varies a lot by companies coverage and states and so they might say no jack a freezer claim is not chargeable with us but it is chargeable with our competition and you really want to look at that because let's say you had everything on one policy. You got, you know, the events going on at your place. You've got the farming, the personal stuff, your cars, and you lose half a steer and your rates go up 15% next year because of it. You are not saving money. So let's talk about so that, the chargeable. That's what you're saying there. In other words, that if it, are you saying if it was chargeable, then my rates would not be adjusted upward because it occurred? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so chargeable would mean your rates are going to go up. And okay. it is, it isn't the agent deciding to raise it. In fact, if the agents had it their way, you'd have cheap insurance that never sure. change because they want to be lazy and never have to try to keep you. Um, so somewhere your insurance company's got something filed with the state of Texas that says if Jack goes from zero to one claim in the last, in the past three years, we're going to raise his rates 17%. If he goes from one to two, we're going to raise it another 20%. And some claims don't count on that. And that's usually going to be weather. They're not going to count weather against you. Uh, med- medical payments, somebody slips and falls on your place, 
And then some of these little coverages, like contents to freezer or identity theft, but those will really vary company to company. And if it's chargeable and it's a little fringe benefit like that, it's pretty pointless, and you're just wasting money. Gotcha. The 4 bucks a month for the coverage might seem like a good deal, but the $800 premium increase is not. What about things people should be doing to make sure that if they have a claim, they're going to get paid. I mean, one of the things I've heard, and I've, I've definitely done this, is you go around your house and anything that's of value that could be stolen, destroyed, etc., um, take a picture of it and put down a value for it. Absolutely. that That's good advice. It does two things. Um, one, it proves to the company what you had. Normally, that's not an issue. Okay. But for your listeners, it might be uh, if my house burns down and I tell the adjuster, I swear I had six months' worth of food in that room. He's going to think I'm lying. Okay. Um, a photo might be beneficial. But what it really does is it helps you remember. Or when I we had, had a collectible Finnish Mazenagants, right? Like Yeah. <laughs> your, Bubba, your Bubba Eyes Mosin is uh, real valuable. You might yeah. want to have a photo of that. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, you know, the other thing it does is it helps remind you. So when we had our house fire, we thought the logical way to do this is we're going to list real valuable stuff. We're going to list furniture, computers. That'll eat up our limit of insurance in no time. Not even close. You would think all the value in your home is the furniture and the computers. Frick, it's a junk drawer. It's fingernail clippers and pencils and you would never remember that stuff if you didn't have photos and videos. So when you do have a claim that worst case house burns down, you know, you're going to be sitting there um, making a list and looking up values and usually don't have to provide receipts and stuff so much, but um, you'll want to know what you got. And the other thing is when you have a claim, make sure you're using all the benefits of it. If you had smoke damage in your house and it's no longer livable, your insurance company is going to pay for you guys to go live somewhere else. Um, a lot of people don't use that type of coverage. So the other thing is just to documenting well. When you called your agent and said, hey, what's the deal with my boat here? If he would have emailed you or left you a voicemail or something and said, Jack, we'll pay you twelve grand if that thing burns up. Your boat burns up and they pay you five. Now they're going to pay you 12 now because whatever your agent says ultimately goes if they can prove it. The company's going to chew his ass, but they're going to have to pay you for it. So because he's, he's engaged in well. creating a contract by, by making that statement because he's supposed to be like if somebody from the, the sweeps your floor at your office tells me that, well, you shouldn't have listened to him, but an agent by their licensure and their very position is supposed to have a commanding effect, uh, an understanding of the policy, and therefore he's engaged on behalf of the company in a contract for that amount of coverage for that event. Exactly. So when he tells you something's covered, that is the same as the company telling you something's covered. And that's why a good agent, you'll hear a lot of, I don't know, I'm going to look that up. Or, <laughs> you know, this is how I think it works, but I'm going to double check. If they say, yeah, I've seen that paid, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's covered, they don't give a shit. And you might not know what you really have. 
So you really want somebody that is willing to admit, you know, I've never insured a podcaster. I'm going to have to do a little research into this and make sure things are right for you. And that might be another example of let's not use the word podcaster. Let's use media personality. Exactly. Right. That's yeah. Exactly. Don't use odd. Don't use words in contracts that are unnecessary, and don't use words in contracts that are uh, that narrowly define something that's easily broadly defined. Like, exactly. I never went to law school or anything, but those basic contractual principles have served me well in 30 years of business. Like, don't ever <laughs> do that. It, it whenever possible, have the other side draft the contract because any ambiguity in the contract benefits the party that did not draft it. Like, that's that we should be teaching kids that in 10th grade. Um, I had a and that's how an insurance contract is. We, yeah. The company wrote it, and we're just giving it to you. We're, you don't really get to negotiate it, so it's kind of in your favor if there is a discrepancy. If, if, it could be, if it could be interpreted two different ways, who drafted it? Okay, then it benefits the party that didn't. That's a, that's a and, common law legal principle that predates our country. Yeah, and you being a media personality brings up another interesting coverage. So sometimes there are coverages that only – really apply to certain people in certain mm. instances. And you podcasting, I mean, what am I going to do, sue you and say I was listening to you? It was so exciting. Uh, listen to the Harris yelling that I ran off the road and crashed. <laughs> what ain't going to happen? What's going to happen is called personal injury. Your homeowner's insurance policy excludes it. You can buy it back in. Most people don't need it. But personal injury is when you go on and say, uh, yeah, this Mike guy, he is, uh, he's an idiot and here's why. We can call me an idiot. If you actually lie about something factual mm-hmm. and you say I did something and I didn't, let's say, um, you know, I get fired because you say I did something I didn't, that'd be personal injury and I would sue you. Um, that's probably a coverage a podcaster or media personality would have. And so when people are doing these unique things, they should really, you know, it's usually pretty obvious if you're a doctor, you need malpractice. But uh, the the flip side of this is you, the guy that has that exposure, is the last person any company wants to sell the coverage to. So it can be a double-edged sword. Hmm. Interesting. Um, what do you think people should do from here when it comes to you know the things they've heard today and the concerns they may have now? Where, where do they go next? Sure. So... Get all your paperwork together is what I would recommend. Um, most people, the time that they're going to look at their insurance is later, and it never happens. So get all your paperwork together um, and ask around for good local agents. And the, the one time I would look at a company is if you have a unique um, affiliation with something, you're a veteran, and I, and I told myself I wouldn't name insurance companies, but you're a veteran and you just love USAA, Maybe you're going to go with them or you're a teacher and you do their teacher thing. But for the most part, it's the agent that really matters. And so if you are a media personality, you probably know some other ones. I'd ask them what they do. If you're a farmer, I'd ask some other farmers what they do. And then you should be interviewing that agent because some percentage of your premium is paying that guy and he needs to earn it. And the way he earns that is asking you about the features of your home explaining that co-insurance and why you shouldn't underinsure your building. Um, you know, you should be sick of him telling you about all these coverages and because the way it should work is him offering it to you and you saying no. Hmm. And 
when there's a claim, you understand that you could have bought it instead of, well, Jack, you could have insured that, um, which I would have told you. Yeah. Um, see if they're willing to consult with an expert and, um, you know, look for those obvious discounts, um, 55 alive. Um, whenever you talk about UBI on the show, it confuses me for a moment. In insurance, we call it usage-based insurance. Okay. Where you plug the little thing in and it tracks you and you get a discount. Um, that's another good way to save some money, um, kind of a place to go from there. And what I would encourage people to do, um, the insurance agents, most people look at them like used car salesmen rather than accountants. That's A lot of them have earned that reputation. But if you find a good one, you sit down and he knows the stuff and he's asking the right questions and showing you the right quote. You know, I'd, I'd go with that guy as opposed to taking his quote, going down the road and asking someone else to copy it for a hundred bucks less. Cause in five years, that guy's going to have it wrong. So yeah, key takeaways is man, just find the right agent and forget about which company is so great and which it isn't. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. A good consultant in any component of your life is, is worth way more than what you spend with them. Um, sure, sure. You know, and I've had some good, in, the best insurance agent I ever had retired. It was like, no! <laughs> because, you know, he, he had pointed things out. And I, I think that what you really want to hear from an insurance agent is, look, here's what this covers. Here's the situations where it would be beneficial. Here's the cost of it, and here's your risk if you don't have it. That's totally different than you should buy this insurance because. Because one is trying to sell me the insurance, and the other is pointing to my risk and saying, well, what is your tolerance for this risk? And in the Absolutely. end, you're not going to insure everything that can go wrong in your life cost-effectively. Like 100% of anything that could ever go wrong, like unless you're uber-rich, you can't afford to do that. Like you were talking about whole life earlier and how it sucks, and like, I can tell you who it works for. It, can, it works for mm-hmm. stupid rich people who exceed um, inheritance uh, taxation limitations, which are huge now, by the way, who want yep. to shelter money before they die. They can go down to their heirs without being taxed, and that's one bucket they put their cabillions of dollars in. Like, are you that? No, then just don't do it. <laughs> right? That's what, I just, just don't do that because that's you're not that. Then that's not what you need to do. Um I can show you a hundred different ways that your money is better spent than doing what that guy uh, told you. And like another thing I would advise people to do is don't buy insurance. Like you were mentioning earlier, like if your, if your cousin's uncle's brother's former roommate says that company doesn't pay, don't listen to him. If your cousin's uncle's former roommate is an insurance agent who can help you, unless he stands on his own as being an agent you would want. And he just happens to be that don't, because I've seen a lot of really, poor decisions made by using insurance agents, lawyers, and accountants because they were somebody's friend. Like that, just no. Yep. Like I, this is a business decision. I'm, I'm glad you're going into the insurance industry. I wish you well. And when you get some real experience under your belt, come back and talk to me. But, you know, it, the fact that you just passed your exam last week and you're running around <laughs> with leads out of your car, selling to people who don't know who you are, and trying to get some friends and family business while you're at it to build up your book of business. If all I need is cheap life insurance and you sell term, we can talk. But when it comes to sitting down with me 
you know, as a as a 48 year old man evaluating the risk that my multiple business units have, you're not qualified to do that. And and you you really got to stay away from that because that person is not doing it because they want to be bad at their job. They're bad at their job because they're new at their job. And you just mm-hmm. you can't do that. And then the experienced person like that who's never worked because they had such a uh, um, friends and family network. You got to be careful of those too, like that because oh, there was a guy sure. that you know. I, I was like 20 years old when I looked at this insurance policy that my father bought for me when I was, when I was a baby. And I was like, wow, that was a bad investment. And I was 20, I could figure that out. But, you know, this guy knew everybody in town and everybody thought he was a good guy. And that was one of his big things is he wrote up infant, infant life insurance policies, you know, uh, that oh, were basically, sure. you know, uh, maturing over time whole life policies for babies. Like, you don't need that. Yeah. You don't. No. We're going to help your child save for his retirement starting, you know, on day one or whatever. And like, man, wow, that's, yeah. And, and, yeah, it doesn't that, quite match in the S&P 500. No, and that was like the, people would just refer him and everybody knew him. And since nobody ever actually had to use that policy, because generally your child, you know, this is not the third world. Generally, when mm-hmm. you have a healthy baby, it does grow up to be an adult. So, and that's a good thing, but that's also a big case where maybe we don't need to put $20,000 worth of life insurance on a, on a, a two-month-old. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense, but that guy had, I guarantee you, he retired well. It's an emotional well. sale. He retired well. And that wasn't the only thing he sold. He was a, you know, a full service life guy. But when, when I came back from the military and my dad said, you know, you should talk to him and all, I already didn't want to. <laughs> but when I did, even, you know, I was 21 years old and I was like, nothing you say makes any sense. But all the people there that were largely and I don't mean to say this detrimentally to where I grew up, but largely ignorant to economics, just, well, that's what, that's what Bill says. So if that's what Bill says, then like Bill's the guy we trust. And so you've got to be really careful on like referrals are the greatest thing in the world if they're due to competence. So if you're going to refer me to an insurance agent and you're a person that runs a small farm and you've done it for years and you're referring me specifically to somebody that specializes in that type of insurance, I probably want to talk to your referral. Before I talk to anybody out of the phone book, I want to talk to your referral. If yep. you're referring me because Bill is your dad's friend, I don't even want to talk to Bill. Bill might be fine, but I don't even want to engage. Does that make sense? I don't even want to engage. Oh, for that. sure. And some people kind of want to keep their business uh, at yeah. a little bit of a distance. You know, They don't want it to be... Sometimes your finances are a little private and, you know, a good agent, people are just, people naturally just want to buy what they want. Cheap insurance, they don't give a rats. Yeah. And a good agent should sell you what you need rather than trying to push you on an emotional sale or just simply let you buy the crap you want. They should sell you what you need or at least give it a good effort. Well, and it's kind of like, you know, the, the old thing is you never sell your car to a friend. Yeah. Right. Like insurance is not a thing where if there is a discrepancy, I want it to destroy a relationship. I like my my agent, who by the way is named Bill. Um, I like him just fine. Nice. He's never been to my house. You know. Really. Like, well, not my new house. Okay. Right. Like he, we've done business for a very long time. Um, he did have somebody when we moved here come out and evaluate things because he's kind of at that level. But he, I, he doesn't hasn't have dinner with me. I don't have drinks with him. 
Oh, you know sure. What I'm saying like I, he's not my friend. Yep. I like him. He's good guy. When we have something new in our lives that requires insurance, the first call that we make always does a great job. Very matter of fact, business oriented individual with a good staff that can help you when you need things, and that's great. But he's mm-hmm. not my friend. He's not my friend, right? He and he's not my buddy, and I have no need for my insurance agent to be my buddy. Now, if it worked out that he became my friend because we had that type of chemistry, great. But I'm not looking for a friend. So, again, I'm not looking for a buddy or a friend in this situation. I'm looking for a team of professionals that can make uh, proper advice to me so I can make good, solid decisions as a homeowner or a business owner or things like that. So that's why I'm kind of adverse to the whole, well, I know somebody and he's my buddy or I know somebody he's my uncle or something like that because it just – and I'm not going to say I would say no to that. What I'm going to say is, well, tell me about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you can tell me, you know, he's, you know, one of the, the, the top agents in, in, in Denton County and he does all these great things and he's worked with these people. He's been in the industry for 25 years. Uh, yeah, maybe I need to talk to him. Um, if it's, well, he's my uncle and I trust him. That's great for you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You need to interview them. I mean, they need to be, you're paying them. They need to earn that and be up to par. Yeah, man. So, hey, I, I really appreciate you, uh, you being with us today. You got any final thoughts for folks here as uh, we wrap up, Mike? No, I would say if uh, there's a lot of things we didn't cover, weird, unique situations, if anybody has a, a question, um, Facebook forum, you can tag me in it, ask a question. I'll feel free to – I'll be happy to nerd out, answer that a little bit. So um, I think – it's probably not legal for me to charge for that service in most states, so it's yeah. a freebie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, I, I do appreciate you being with us today, and I hope it helps people uh, take a better look at, you know, kind of where their risks are. And, 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 you know, I really do think people need to understand that when it comes to preparedness, you don't turn away from the non-sexy, pragmatic stuff. Everybody wants, you know, beans, bullets, and Band-Aids, and there's a value to that, but, like, your home is your, your your biggest asset or your biggest liability. It all depends on how you treat it. And uh, man, it can it can really hurt you to have gaps in your insurance. So hopefully, people will take a deeper look at that. Yeah, it's not as cool as night vision goggles, but it's important. Hey, and make sure you have insurance on your NVGs too, man. They're I know, right? They're expensive. <laughs> anyway, Mike, uh, thanks for being with us today. Thanks. Like I said, great topic, and clearly no policy, no program, no website, no anything was pushed there, just an understanding of risk, risk mitigation, risk management through the use of insurance products, which, again, is is, is a pragmatic, preparatory thing that so many people overlook when it comes to they say, I'm a survivalist, I'm a prepper. Man, if you don't have the proper insurance in place, are you really? Because a lot of the things that can go wrong, that's the easiest way to mitigate manage and protect yourself against them Uh, with that before we wrap up today let me remind you guys you can always help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com t-s-p-a-z.com and um, i got an interesting conundrum for you guys today so i've been asked a lot about actually using the dr earth premium gold organic fertilizer uh, that you use like how to do it and um, i say kind of mid-season kind of just sprinkle it around your plants and and that's what you do, right? That's that's the mid-season fertility uh, component of it. And I really don't know that, I mean, when I do it next time, I'll I'll video it, but you kind of sprinkle it around plants 
mid-season so that they get that mid-season boost. But when you plant your transplants, um, I think that's where people really like, well, what, do you, what exactly do you mean by putting some on the roots or whatever? So I did a video uh, a couple days ago. I put it out yesterday. And I'm just planting some eggplants. And I kind of show how you kind of dust the roots and how I dig the hole and uh, how I take the dirt from the hole and I put it in a little container and I throw a certain amount of the Dr. Earth in there and I mixed it up. So I was like, well, since I did that, even though I just had it on like two weeks ago, I'll bring the Dr. Earth organic product back because it's, it's, it's the best solid organic fertilizer I have ever used. Uh, the... Uh, the profile of the beneficial microorganisms in it alone makes it like two products in one. So it seems a little expensive, but really it's like two products. And so I, I really love this product. Well, it turns out that a lot of the different varieties of it are, and sizes are sold out on Amazon. The 12-pound bag is still affordable, uh, but there was only a few left in inventory. And usually when they get down to one, that's when they jack the price up because they don't want you to buy it. That's just how a lot of sellers on Amazon manage their inventory so they don't sell out and lose a listing. So I figured that'll go way up today. And then a lot of the sizes in the premium gold are just not available. So I did this video, I brought it back, and then boom, like a lot of this stuff just disappeared the day I did it. Uh, and then somebody on Facebook told me that the 444 formula, the premium gold, is being discontinued. Dr. Earth doesn't say anything about that on our website. Send them an email, can't verify that, it could be coming. So I did a couple things today. Number one, um, I advised, you know, buy the 12-pound bag, not the 4-pound bag. Because the 4-pound bag now costs more than the 12-pound bag because of the inventory thing. So don't buy the 4-pound bag. I gave you an alternative product from Dr. Earth, the Dr. Earth Tomato Vegetable and Herb Fertilizer. It's probably 99% the same product. It's got the same microorganisms and all in it. What it is is a 4-6-3 on the NPK ratio instead of a 4-4-4. I really like balanced formulas. Okay, maybe it's a little bit of OCD, but there's nothing wrong with it. I've used that product as well. It'll work great. So I give you that in the write-up. And then the other thing that I give you in the write-up is a product made by a company called EcoScraps. I've been asked, is there a less expensive formula out there? EcoScraps, for a four-pound bag, is about 7 bucks. So it's about $21 for 12 pounds of it, which is you know compared to about 30 bucks for the Dr. Earth product. To me, the Dr. Earth product's worth the spread in price because of the beneficial microorganisms. But... The EcoScraps product is a 555 balanced fertilizer, and I've used it, and I will continue to use it uh, when I can't get Dr. Earth, or when I do kind of a broadcast, which means like, you know, you just like sprinkle it across the entire bed at the beginning of the season. It's, it, it is more affordable, and it works really well for just a general nutrient boost of a bed. So I have all of that in the write up. And I also uh, mentioned that I have a product that's part of my fertility program, and this is also in the write-up today, uh, called endomycorrhizae fungi. And this is four strains of this really great fungi, and I have trialed it side-by-side side in two beds treated exactly the same way, and you can see a distinctive difference and better performance when you use the endomycorrhizae fungi. The thing is, the Dr. Earth product, both the premium gold and the one that I've recommended as an alternate for you today, have all four of those same strains of mycorrhiza fungi. So why do I recommend both? The reason I do is because the Dr. Earth product is like a broad-spectrum product, and there's only so much of those things in there. Okay, The, the dedicated mycorrhiza fungi product is just those four things, and it really boosts them. And it does fantastic things for the uh, what's called exudate exchange between soil and roots of the plants. And even using it with the Dr. Earth, you can see in side-by-side -side comparisons that it does more. 
it's kind of expensive, but a little goes a long way. So in the video that's in today's write-up, you'll see me kind of dust the roots with the Dr. Earth product. If I had had the endomycorrhizal product, I would have done just a little bit of that in addition to, like, again, like a, a one-pound or a four-pound bag of that stuff lasts for a couple seasons. In fact, I tend to buy a smaller amounts of it because... I really don't feel good about keeping it over a winter into the next season and having it stay as viable. It has about a one-year reported share shelf life of, of, of stored properly, which means it's still going to work, but some of them are going to become inert, inactive, and die. Right. So I try to buy just as much as I need for a season. I didn't have any this spring because it was, it was not discontinued. It was just not available. It's finally back. So it's in the program again, and it's in the write-up today, and the video, which is only about a four-minute video, shows you exactly how I use the product. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you do what's in that video, especially if you plant some plants doing it and some plants just not doing it, you will become convinced that this form of boosting fertility works so amazingly well. And the reason I spend so much time on this today is so many people are frustrated with their gardens and they just don't feel like they're getting the performance that they're looking for out of their plants. They're not getting the yields they're looking for. And what they're doing is they're trying to be all super permaculture and do everything with compost. You can. It takes time and it takes the right environmental conditions. So a lot of your soil organisms don't really get up and going to full speed until the soil warms to a certain temperature. By using these amendments that provide immediate bioavailability to the plants and boosting soil life early on, you get just much more vigorous plants. And that means that not only do they grow more and yield more, they're more resistant to disease and pests. And when I trialed, again, using the mycorrhizal fungi product, um, two beds, same stuff. You could even see not just one was more vigorous, but one had more pest pressure. And the one had more pest pressure, even though it was, it was great, you would have been happy with it. You'd have had to look at it side by side to see the difference. But really recommend you consider my entire fertility program. If you have any questions about my fertility program, just ask, and I'll make sure they get into uh, either a blog article or a future episode. But remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping where? tspaz.com. With that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up today with our song of the day today. We are doing interesting covers week, and this is all like songs that are covered by bands that you wouldn't think would do that cover, and they don't do some like rocked out version of it. They do something very true to the original. Um, this song was originally by Buddy Holly, and it's called Bus Stop. And if you don't think you've heard it, you've heard it. And as soon as the song starts, you'll be like, oh, that song. Um, but the people doing the cover, Dawkins. Like one of the iconic 80s cover bands. And when John Adams said this to me, he said, I always considered Dawkins to be more talented than a lot of the hair bands. Yeah, I would say that like Dawkins has this kind of like metal look to them that everybody in the 80s had and all. But they were a band that was a lot more like, like Cinderella, the band Cinderella, or maybe toward Poison than they were like, you know, yesterday we had Anthrax. Right, they don't have like Dawkins never had a lot of like screaming, yelling uh, type music. It was always music like, hey, you, you could tell these guys are doing a certain genre of music, but they've got the vocals, they got the pipes, you know, uh, they got the talent. Um, that said, it's still kind of a surprising cover to hear it done, even in not just true to type, but in the style and in kind of the vocal inflections and all. To realize this is Dawkins doing this song from Buddy Holly. With that's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Bus stop, what day she's there, I say, please share my umbrella. 
Under my umbrella